Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello, and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. What do you think of when you hear the phrase revolutionary women? If you cast your mind back to the movers and shakers of the revolutions that marked the 20th century, what women's names come to mind? Those are some of the questions behind a new book entitled She Who Struggles, Revolutionary Women Who Shaped the World. It's a collection of 13 essays exploring the lives of women at the forefront of 20th century socialist and feminist upheavals around the globe, from Mali to the Philippines, from El Salvador to Pakistan. Today's episode of the podcast is a roundtable conversation between five of the book's contributors. Spearheading that conversation is the volume's co-editor, my History Workshop colleague, Sorsha Thompson, who's here with Hi, me Mary now. Beth. Hi, Sorsha. So tell me what lay behind the creation of this volume, why it seemed important to, to pull these essays together. Well, firstly, I think it's important to say that the collection was conceived in response to a contemporary political moment where it feels like there is a real demand for radical histories to provide guidance and sustenance to ongoing struggles of liberation around the world. And it was in that context that Morale and I wanted to bring this collection together. At the same time, myself and the majority of the contributors work in universities where there has been a boom of research uncovering global histories of revolution in the 20th century. But many of us remain quite troubled by the fact that there is a continued absence of women in these histories. We know they were there, organising, mobilising, caring, leading, yet their names and contributions continue to be overshadowed by those of men. So we wanted to both question and challenge this absence with the belief that by doing so, we just learn more about women's struggles, but about revolutionary struggles themselves. We wanted to do this in a format that could take these potential lessons beyond the academy and to feature women that represent a global tradition of struggle, one that is often missing in institutionalized commemorations of women. And so to do this, as you mentioned, we brought together 13 brilliant scholars, historians, and activists with unique expertise and invited them to bring to life the story of a revolutionary woman or woman's movement of their choice. And what we ended up with is a collection of essays, testimonies and interviews about revolutionary women's lives and movements from Africa, Asia, Latin America and Ireland. By placing these side by side, the intention wasn't to elevate them necessarily as extraordinary women who single-handedly championed causes, but rather to illustrate connections that might exist between them their shared struggles and visions from which there's the potential to learn something today. Fantastic. And now here's Sorsha's conversation with four of the book's contributors, Maral Shamshiri, Alif Sarakan, Yata Kizolu, and Mavish Ahmad. So we started this project with the question, who are the revolutionary women of the 20th century? Today, we have four brilliant contributors from the book joining us to share their stories of revolutionary women and discuss these questions. Can I ask you to introduce yourselves? Morale, would you like to start? Hi, it's great to be part of this conversation today. My name is Morale Shamshiri. As Sosha has mentioned, I'm co-editor of the book and I've written a chapter in the book, which is what I'll be talking about today in the podcast. 
I'm currently working on a PhD at LSE on the history of revolutionary movements in the Middle East in the 1960s and 70s. Hi, my name is Elif Sarakan. I'm a writer, editor, curator and translator. A lot of my work is based on and around the Kurdish women's movement, the history, the uh, current struggle and the future trajectories of it. And I also work with a number of cultural institutions on various projects as well. Hi, everyone. My name is Yatsa Kuzolu. I am an assistant professor of global and international studies at UC Irvine. I work across 20th century U.S., women and gender studies, and contemporary Africa and African diaspora studies. Hi, everyone. My name is Mavish Ahmed. I'm an assistant professor in human rights and politics at the LSC. I work on many things, among other anti-colonial and left histories, especially in Pakistan and the surroundings of the Asian region, and also histories of militarism, but especially the movements and communities organizing in the midst of violence. I'm also a UK-based member of the Women's Democratic Front, who I interviewed for your book. I wonder if to start, we could go around in the same order and introduce the woman or women that you chose to bring into the collection. Yes, thanks, Osha. So the woman I wrote about in this collection is Marzia Ahmadi Oskui. She was an Iranian Nazari woman who was part of the anti-imperialist left-wing revolutionary movement in opposition to the dictatorship of the Shah of Iran in the 60s and the 70s. Marzia was a teacher, a poet, writer, organiser and guerrilla fighter who was first involved in student politics and then became a member of the Iranian people's Fadai guerrillas, who were the prominent Marxist guerrilla organisation that launched the armed struggle in Iran in February 1971. I mean, I want to start by saying just how important and exciting it is that this book exists in the world. And I think beyond all the revolutionary women and struggles that the readers will get to go on a journey with, I think it's also the way that the book has come together, I think, is a demonstration that actually, in a meaningful way, we are genuinely stronger together. And I think that's that definitely comes through. And I'm very happy that the person I wrote about, Sakina Jansas, has a home amongst the revolutionaries in this edited volume. And so, yeah, I wrote about Sakina Jansas, who is one of the founders of the Kurdish Freedom Movement of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, was one of two women at the founding Congress in 1978 which is a very crucial part of which is a very crucial part of the history that she represents and she's also widely considered and is practically and in a very meaningful way one of the founders of the Kurdish women's movement that is of course in and connected to the broader Kurdish freedom movement but also organizes and struggles and continues to mobilize autonomously a women's liberation struggle and i think one of the things that's important to say about Sakina Jansas is that her history and her life is very intertwined with the history of the Kurdish women's movement as a whole. So sometimes it's difficult to separate that and therefore, you know, almost, I guess, do it justice because it's also a history that is very much alive and continues to be made. So what I wrote about is her history and what brought her to revolutionary struggle, the pro-revolutionary struggle that she was engaged in and that she created with her comrades. 
and also her very brutal and unfortunate assassination in 2013, over 10 years ago now. Yeah, so I looked at the life of Mabel Dove Danka, who was a Ghanaian creative writer turned journalist, um, who in 1954 became the first democratically elected woman in the Gold Coast or colonial Ghana. Um, and she's also recognized as the first on the African continent. And in her work, we see this really strong criticism of, of British colonialism. Uh, she understood colonialism as uh, as one expression, right, of, of global white supremacy that oppressed and exploited Black people everywhere um, and people of color everywhere. Um, but she also understood colonialism as a gender project, right, one that sub subjugated women. And so these are some of the major themes that are both in her writing and what she brought to her political career, even if it was brief, as part of the making of what would become the first independent Black nations in 20th century Sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you so much. And just to add, Yata co-wrote her chapter with Medina Thiam, who can't be with us today, but they beautifully wrote together to cross the boundaries of their women's lives across nations. Absolutely. And let me also start by thanking you guys for such a fantastic job. I think that it's almost a little bit funny that it took, you know, people like you two to finally put together a volume like this. And there's always this narrative about how women, it, it, maybe the archives are absent or we don't know how to write these histories, but I think your volume really tells us that there's actually an overflow of stories. And maybe you need to rejigger your methodology or maybe you need to rejigger your idea of how you do archive or, or whatever, but there is so much material out there. I think it's the op opposite of like archival absence, for example, it's like, actually a, a, a huge amount of stories that still wait to be written. So I brought in uh, three comrades from Pakistan, from socialist feminist autonomous collective called the Women's Democratic Front. So these are women who are currently organizing and trying to build or rebuild, depending on one's reading, a socialist feminist formation. They were formed in 2018, so relatively recently, in the midst of uh, a broader attempt to rebuild the left, which was absolutely decimated through uh, a U.S. allied military, a military that was a premier anti-communist ally in South Asia, which targeted communists and the, and the left in Pakistan. It also came out of a frustration among a lot of socialist feminists that the broader left formations of which they had been a part remained very blind to their own entrenched sexist and sort of male-centric habits, and that there was a need to organize autonomously, yet also not separately, but in, in collaboration with broader left formations. So the Women's Democratic Front I am myself a member of the Women's Democratic Front from the UK, and I reached out to Ismat Shahjahan, uh, Marvi Latifi, and Tuba Sayed, who are three just powerhouses in terms of organizing uh, within Pakistan. In the interview, which is you know very rich with with detail, one of the things that we really wanted to do, you know, the, the one of the primary modes of left history writing, especially in Pakistan and and South Asia is through the biography of the male leader and autobiography. Men often write autobiographies of their long uh, history of 
of left organizing. And this was an attempt to write, you know, actually do a kind of biography of three women and see what that tells us, not within the strictures of like political discipline, but just like what are the various routes that one takes uh, towards being politicized the way they are. And each of these women, Ismet Shah Jahan, has a longer history within uh, the Communist Party and is a member of something called the Pashtun Tahafiz movement, which is a very important anti-militarist movement that has emerged out of the border regions where the drone strikes have also happened. She's been part of various feminist formations, for example, also working with and in the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan. There is uh, Margi Latifi, who comes from Sindh, another province, Hyderabad, where she has also been involved with a left-wing formation called the Abami Workers' Party. All of them are part of the Abami Workers' Party as well. And then there's Duba Sayed, who is a dentist, but came sort of later, much younger. And you can read about the details of their biography in the book. Thank you so much. And I've just had, we feel very, very uh, lucky to have that contribution from the Women Democratic Front in the collection. I think we get the chance to go more into these women's lives now. And Ella, something that you mention in your chapter is the way in which stories of revolutionary women are often told as if they became part of revolutionary movements by some sort of accident, as if they're accidental revolutionaries. But I wonder what were the conditions in which these women did become part of political movements and where did they derive their political convictions from? Thank you, Sersha. Um, I think I think this is part of actually the also some of the ways in which perhaps, although there is a richness and like so much archival and material and stories like Mahavish spoke about, this is the question in which perhaps sometimes we need to rethink the methodology of, of course, writing those history. Because in a way, the advantage, one of the silver linings of the trying to now counter some of these dominant history is that we get to also di- do it differently and therefore be able to tell it in in a meaningful way that also still keeps it alive and can contribute to struggle today and I think this is definitely one of those questions in that how did these women become politicized how did they become revolutionaries and you know what it's also not to dismiss the sometimes the like accidental element of it that it's not to dismiss that it's to give credit to the agency of these women have in their lives and often have part of becoming a revolutionary being re reclaiming those agencies which I think is very important to highlight and I think in the case of Sakina Jansas but many many uh, of the women that I mentioned in the book and uh, in the Kurdish women's movement also as a whole, these were very intentional processes that actually these women struggled for and really resisted to go towards. And, you know, anyone who reads uh, the life of Sakina Jansas will will understand her, the, you know, the stubbornness and the insistence of trying to find her, her revolutionary comrades and as referred to in the Kurdish movement, her friends, so her hevals, that insistence and that stubbornness that to go towards that really comes through. And that process being actually when you can see that it's in parallel for her, for her also reclaiming and actually defending her own agency as, as also as an individual, but existing within a collective revolutionary struggle. And I think for a lot of these women, of course, it starts from a point of frustration, of dissatisfaction with what they see around them and also also often related to their own lives directly and thinking about, you know, what to do about that beyond just satisfaction and not being happy with what's happening. So I think that what we see 
across the book, and of course in the case of Sakina Jansas as well, is the way in which that dissatisfaction and the frustrations and the rage actually can turn into action. And I think we see that all throughout her life, from childhood, from you know her school years to when she's a bit older and starts organizing and then to her prison years and then afterwards and that continuation. So I think that definitely is a very important part of understanding how some of these women become politicized and and revolutionaries and create revolutionaries as well. I think also importantly, right? Like not just, well, support, but not just support, but mobilize and organize in a way that it's not just about them becoming revolutionaries, but how do I, how do I spread this form of being, of life, of struggle? Does anyone else want to add about how the woman they wrote about became politicised because I think it is interesting to look at the the differences as well as the similarities for example Yatta Mabel Dove what was the context in which she became a political leader? Yeah I mean I think you can see similar themes through 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 Dove's life she has this kind of headstrong orientation to her from when she was an adolescent growing up and her father tried to send her to secretariat school and she sort of secretly drops out. So this kind of like headstrongness about her own experiences as a woman and what she's supposed to do, that as we get towards the 1940s and 1950s where the the possibility of of self-governance is becoming more and more real, we see her moving from her creative work into direct action. And some of that has to do with the work of the CPP, the Convention People's Party, which is Nkrumah's party, and the way that they are using women, the way that women are very visible in the party work on the ground as organizers that allows women to have a place within national politics, within the struggle for for national independence. And so as we get to that moment, um, we see Dove making this shift from her own creative work, her writing, right, to taking a more direct and visible role in in national politics. So yes, the themes of, of just their own experiences in life, how they see women's experiences in, in society, her own headstrong attitude that independence, if we are serious about independence, that there should be something different for women as well as some of these motivations for her to move into the work of direct action. Morale and Mavis, would you like to add something about how the women you've written about became politicised? I think Marzia's case is really interesting because like she's not really very well remembered like within Iranian history at all. She's remembered within leftist circles to some extent. But the point at which she gets remembered is when she joins the guerrilla organization. And actually what I tried to do in this chapter is to show that actually, wait, like what what gets her there? Her political life isn't just her guerrilla activities at that point, even though that's so important. And so luckily she wrote she yeah she she was a writer she was writing and she basically after her death so she dies really young and maybe I can get into that later but she basically is killed by the state at 29 years old and after she dies her organization publish memoirs of a comrade which is a compilation of her writings and her poetry there's a bit of like questioning around the extent to which what's written in this memoir was actually written by her and like is it truly her words and language or is it like does it reflect the views of her organization because it was the guerrilla organization that ultimately published it but I think it is based on you know her writings and like her reflections as a young person and actually 
in this Memoirs of a Comrade, she's writing about the anger and the frustration, kind of like what you're saying, Elif, of being in a society where she's experiencing and seeing this poverty around her. She's angry. She's growing up under a dictatorship, under the Shah. The Shah is US-backed and the political repression that is experienced all around there is really no room for political opposition and then as a student she's kind of getting more and more involved in these political groupings she becomes an organizer and she engages in oppositional activities and so in a way I think those domestic conditions are really important to recognize sort of how she gets to to where she eventually does which is as a a member of this guerrilla organization And also, I think she's one of the women in the book who becomes a guerrilla fighter and she picks up arms. And that is a really contentious question in history. And when you actually look at what politicizes her and people like her and you kind of see that broader context, you actually realize they're asking this question. What is to be done? Like, what can we do? There is political repression. We don't know what we can do. And armed struggle is one of the conclusions that that some of these groups at the time reach. And I guess the broader global context becomes really important too, because it's not like an individual thing that's happening in certain countries. It's happening everywhere. It's sort of the 70s. It's the anti-colonial revolution. It's in Africa, Asia, Latin America. So it's, you know, not really an unusual story either in that sense. It's so fascinating. Like I have the pressure on me that the three women I interviewed will probably listen to this interview and see how it is that I summarize their life history. So that's a serious amount of pressure. Um, so I hope I do justice. Two comrades, Ismat, Duba, and Marvi. But what I found in my interpretation of how they told about their own politicization was how different the roots into left and radical socialist feminist politics was. So I'm going to read a little bit off what they wrote. So Marvi, for example, you hear her tell about how she had a very unusual route in, which was something like this. The question of women's place in society emerged for me, though not in the way you might suspect. I was initially conservative, a bit of a fundamentalist, and started wearing an abaya and destroying pictures of myself to follow strict ideas of Islamist modesty. It was only once I was quite deeply involved that I began to feel a restriction in my mobility. I was told I can't go here or there, so I began to think about gender. And then she goes on to talk about how she meets this professor at her university. He gives her some books on socialism and she begins to get involved in left politics. And so here you have actually a real challenge to the uh, the very easy division between, you know, I guess, right and left, conservative and emancipatory or Islamist and socialist and what it means to be politically radicalized, because obviously you can be radicalized on the right and the left. And of course, she goes through that, but then she actually ends up rejecting that politics and going going elsewhere. And then you have somebody like Comrade Ismat Shah Jahan, who's, who's you know, from an earlier generation. And she speaks about how, you know, first sort of says, well, you can't really identify. You can't. It depends on how you define feminism. And if you if you define it too narrowly, then you're not going to be able to make space for the story that I have to tell. And then she goes on to speak about how in her family, there were members of the Khudai Fitmat God, which literally means servants of God, but it was an important anti-colonial movement in what is now Northern Pakistan. And at that point it was Northwest India, quote unquote, the frontier regions. 
and a very important anti-colonial leader, very closely aligned with Gandhi and propagating a kind of a nonviolent anti-colonial politics. And then she traces how through her father, who took her to communist study circles, she gets politically radicalized. And so it is a little bit of a family story, but it's also the story of her finding her own place and her own voice as a socialist feminist. And also, and I actually don't remember if, if this comes up here, but she also speaks about her seeing her own mother, who is kind of a product of the partition in that she's a young Hindu girl who gets uh, left behind in the violence of partition and then uh, grows up here. And then you have Tuba Sayed, who has a very different route, like her father was a leftist, but she sees how that he's a member of the Pakistan People's Party, which is an important leftist party, which now is criticized for having kind of really moved away from its, its socialist principles. But she sees how the women are sort of silenced, marginalized, and violated in various ways. And then she begins to herself go to protests when there's a particular events of sexual violence that happen that are very public, et cetera, and begins to then slowly meet people. But one of the really important protests that she goes to is not something that you would immediately identify as feminist. It's actually in the 2013-14, when a caravan of travelers who are missing persons activists from the southern province of Balochistan walked for 100 days and arrive in Islamabad. I remember I was there as well. They arrive in Islamabad trying to bring attention to enforced disappearances. And Tuba, that was one of the first protests that Tuba went to and began to then connect with the leftists who were among the few who showed up in solidarity with this community. So you have three very different sets of, of stories. But there's also, I want to say one last thing, which is, what does it mean to narrate? This was a case of like three women who were narrating their own story and through that narration, making sense of their own journey. And I can absolutely tell you that in the editing process, because they are actively organizing now, there are parts of their story that they couldn't include that would create real issues for them in their in their organizing today uh, or in their existing political relations. And I think that that question also comes up a lot, I think, for all of us, I'm guessing, right? which is uh, what is ethical to include here? What kind of things can be really hurtful? What kind of conversations don't need to see the light of day? Which ones need to happen behind closed doors for the purposes of movement building? Leading on from this, it's really helpful to recognize the multiple different routes and it helps us avoid any sort of idealized vision, the perfect revolutionary woman. And also commonality that appears as these women were struggling against societal oppressions, they experienced rage and that led to resistance. I want to ask you about something else, which is the way in which they shared something else in common, which was how they were women in male-dominated movements. So the sort of struggles that they might have had within movements. And I think that leads on to a second question, which comes up across the book, is which is the question of feminism. So for some of the women in the book, women's liberation was a primary reference point and they self-identified as feminists. For others, they understood feminism to be a white bourgeois concept from a Western tradition. So I wonder what role did feminism, if any, play or does it play in these women's lives? And can we and should we consider these women as feminists retrospectively if they did not use that term themselves? I mean, I'm happy to kickstart. <laughs> um, I think the two questions are 
very intertwined actually in you know existing within perhaps male dominated movements or obviously male dominated society like almost in every case right um if not every case and i think in the case of Sakina Jansas and the Kurdish women's movement, what is, I think, interesting at, when you read her life and therefore seeing that journey and, as I mentioned earlier on, ha- just how intertwined Sakina Jansas' life is with the the also history of the Kurdish women's movement is the process of organising within quite a male-dominated structure. You know, Sakina Jansas was one of two women at the founding congress of the Kurdistan Workers' Party to a place where Sakina Jansas did actually get to experience herself, but wasn't sadly able to see the fruits of particularly the Rojava revolution and, and the way some of those were really manifesting in a place that, like, you know, one could also establish alternative forms of governance although that was also that's also been happening in northern Kurdistan you know south east Turkey which she would have known about I think what's very important about the life of Sakina Jansas is how it went from organizing and and trying to exist um, as an individual but also as the identities that she represented as a woman as Kurdish as an Alevi as from Dersim with the you know history of the the brutal massacre by the Turkish state um, against the Kurdish Alevis of Dersim. So all of this, like, how do you get to exist? Uh, how do you make sure that all parts of yourself are alive? And I think reading Sakina Johnson's life and and seeing that process of her embracing every part of herself, you know, there's like small examples in her like longer memoirs that are published, also published by Pluto Press, where she talks about the shift from like her being embarrassed previously to wear like Kurdish traditional clothes to then going to a Kurdish event in Germany and being embarrassed that she didn't have traditional Kurdish clothes. And some of the like more simple manifestations of starting to embrace parts of her identity to of course other like to more militant examples of that of of course like the way she is is said by like anyone who was in prison at the same time as her as being one of the core people for the continuation of the resistance in prison against the against the Turkish state in the context of a fascist coup d'etat so I think in that sense it's it's very it's very interesting but I think one of the things that one you know there's obviously many elements to it but i think one of the things that is probably the most crucial in the way that uh sakina johnson's and her friends were able to exist and struggle within a male-dominated society and for a while a movement is organizing as women is organizing autonomously as women and and building and creating that solidarity with each other that meaningful solidarity of the most basic thing of in most circumstances the, the militants of the Kurdish women's movement will not criticize each other in front of men that they will ferociously criticize each other in their autonomous spaces but that doesn't that and that doesn't mean that you're then separating yourself or like this like sectarian approach to what women's liberation looks like of course there are also critiques that that happen within those other spaces of like you know men and women and mixed structures of also that solidarity as people in struggle, but understanding that one's identity as a woman, as an oppressed nation, is that of, and in particularly in the case of Sakina Johnson, is not double, but triple oppression. And I think in terms of whether she sees herself as a feminist or not, you know, the, the way the Kurdish women's movement articulates women's liberation is they don't refer to themselves as a 
feminist ideology, but a women's liberationist ideology. And I think in in practice and in some sense and in some cases, it that that struggle looks similar to other women's struggles that would like that would explicitly articulate themselves as feminist struggles. But I think what the difference here is that it's not just about I mean, not that most of feminism is, but I think it was also in a way a bit of a critique of it's not just about changing the status of women, but actually the whole of society and like transforming the whole of society. And but understanding that for that to happen, for for freedom and liberation to be possible, the starting point is women's liberation. So a society cannot be free without women's liberation. And that is the starting point. But of course, the the aim and the goal and the revolutionary struggle is for the freedom of everyone. I guess that's yeah I think that's interesting because it's actually a little different to how like Marzia Ahmadi Oskui kind of engages with politics does she fit into this volume yes I think so for her it's this question of and you know sort of her sort of guerrilla organization the Fadais they're a Marxist-Leninist group and they put a class analysis first and that comes before any reading of women's liberation on and in fact the Iranian left has been really heavily criticized for putting that question of women's liberation as secondary to this leftist anti-imperialist revolution that had to come first it's like you know let's have the real revolution first and then we'll deal with the women's question and that yeah I guess in the aftermath of the 79 revolution in Iran has caused a lot of kind of discussion and these two things have to take place at the same time. We know that now. But this position comes from the fact that I think the 70s and the 60s and the 70s, the Iranian state takes on this state feminism. The Pahlavi state kind of co-opts feminism, right? It's opportunistic. It's not about the liberation of all women. It's very much like an elitist project. And so feminism becomes branded and understood as this imperial bourgeois project. Um, and so the kind of Iranian left don't really engage with it. And I think in that way, reading Marcia's writings and kind of reading about her life and how others remember her, she, would, she wouldn't have identified as a feminist. But actually what she's doing is she's engaging in a politics that through this kind of class analysis is interested in the liberation and freedom of all people. And that includes women, of course, but how this plays out obviously is very different if women's, so the women question isn't on the agenda from the beginning. And I think in her writings and in her poetry, we actually do see some instances of a feminist sensibility that she does have, like you see it, it comes through like, She's really critical of, like, she visits a village and she's really critical of young girls being forced into sex work. But rather than seeing it through the lens of patriarchy, she sees it through the lens of class oppression. And so that, that's one example. And I think in her legacy as well, she's a really interesting figure because her poetry travels beyond Iran's borders and it kind of goes to the women's movement in Afghanistan. And so one of her poems, I Am a Woman, which... Well, it's actually not her poem, but it's she's remembered for writing this poem. This poem basically is taken up by the revolutionary women's movement in Afghanistan. And they kind of see her as this revolutionary woman figure and sort of feminist figure. So I think there is that distinction between like, how would she identify versus what can we see through her revolutionary life? It's interesting because I don't think she would use the word feminist but she has a very 
clear analysis of society based on her own experience as a woman, right? And and also the experiences of women in different social positions from her. But as a woman in these male-dominated movements, I think one of the moments in her life where you can sort of see the implications of that pretty succinctly is, is in how she loses her seat. So in 1956, Mabel Dove sort of defies Nkrumah and insists on taking this tour of the United States to look at women's women's organizing, right? It's it's at least from one speech prior to her taking off, she's talking about wanting to build a strong women's movement in Ghana. And so we can think of the tour as her trying to expand her socio-political lens as she tries to bring this experience as part of the nation building project. And so she goes to the United States. She insists on touring the US South. And this is at the height of the civil rights movement. She insists on going to Montgomery, Alabama at the height of the bus boycotts. However, while she's away, the election that solidifies Gold Coast independence takes place, and that's how she ends up losing her seat. But what's important here, I think what this brings up is the question about uh, women's agency and what women are able to do and bring women's issues as part of the nation-building project, whether for these male leaders, women's issues were seen as something to be taken up after the fact. And we can see from these women leaders themselves, from Dove herself, she saw women's issues as something that should be a part of it from the beginning. Mavish, would you like to add something about the role of feminism in the Women Democratic Front Pakistan? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Women's Democratic Front explicitly identifies itself as a socialist feminist collective. I think that it's really important and interesting to remember that they do so in the context where we are after, you know, after the critiques of the white bourgeois feminist imperialist project. We're after like Lila Abulurud's Do Muslim Women Need Saving and a lot of those really important critiques that have been made of the way that women's rights have been co-opted for imperial capitalist projects. And what the WDF truly as an organization argues is that, yes, there is absolutely a co-optation of a feminist discourse, but that is not akin to dismissing feminism as an actual set of ideas and practices that have a root within Pakistan and the surrounding region as something that animates people in terms of their imaginations, in terms of the politics that they do. And it's incredibly important not to dismiss formations like the WDF, which can sometimes happen. And I'm going to, you know, even within some corners of critical academia as just a a kind of, oh, these are just liberal groups because they use a language that, that is politically Western somehow. So they say, no, there is an actual um, rooted histories as well. And the point of doing these this interview, which I've done with the WDF comrades in the form of biographies, especially somebody like Ismat Shah Jahan, who has a longer political history within Pakistan, is to say, well, you have this intertwining of uh, women's politics, of feminism, of socialism in her biography. And you can't just decide that some of it is more indigenous than other parts. You know, her Pashtun nationalism is more indigenous than her her feminism or uh, and so on and so forth. So the other the other thing is that while there is, you know, at this point in, you know, 2023, a, a very good set of criticisms of certain forms of corporatized feminism and so on, there is also a very troubling use of that kind of discourse by regimes in 
countries like Pakistan to dismiss feminist movements. And Elif can probably also speak to how in Turkey, Erdogan will probably use all sorts of accusations about feminism being a Western white bourgeois thing and not local to Turkish cultures or, or the region's cultures, right? Because it's obviously Turkish supremacist. But in Pakistan as well, feminists get dismissed as being Western stooges and not having um, an actual actual presence. And the WDF uh, pushes against that notion. At the same time, and they speak about this in the interview, you know, they're, they're pushing against that notion on the one hand, which they encounter uh, both in the discourses from sitting, uh, sitting regimes who try to basically, the, the WDF has been subject to, along with other, other women's uh, movements in Pakistan the last couple of years, very serious blasphemy charges for daring to speak about, you know, my body, my right, or bringing up issues around sexual violence, et, et cetera. So they're pushing up against, they're pushing back against that accusation. They're also reacting to what they think, what they think has been uh, one line within some forms of post-colonial critical academia to valorize like um, some right-wing politics, Islamist politics and right-wing politics and Muslim women's piety kind of stuff over and above more emancipatory women's movements in the region. And, and then they also are pushing against, you know, male-dominated left movements where they're trying to create space for themselves. And they're pushing against the liberal feminists that do exist in Pakistan, that do take money from USAID, that do allow themselves or actively take part in reproducing, for example, American power in the region. Thank you. I'm going to move on now to another massive theme in the book, which is solidarity and specifically international solidarity. And part of the aim of bringing these different women together from different parts of the world, primarily Africa, Asia and Latin America, and one example from Ireland, is to look to the connections between them. And it is possible looking backwards to potentially see a model of global solidarity in existence. However, in reality, Mavish, as one of your interviewees highlighted, often the need is to focus on the grassroots and the national building of the movement before engaging in international solidarity work or before it's possible to engage in international solidarity work. As a comparison from the book, in the chapter I wrote about Melba Hernandez, who was a heroine of the Cuban revolution, fought in the armed struggle, obviously from a completely different era and place from Mavis's Women's Democratic Front, she worked explicitly in international solidarity work as General Secretary of OSPAL in the 1970s, the Organization of Solidarity with People of Africa, Asia and Latin America, and before that as head of the Vietnam Solidarity Committee in Cuba. And throughout the book, there's varying levels to which the women actively engage in what we might view as international solidarity work and to their visions of what internationalism means. And I wonder if you could each speak a little bit about what solidarity, international solidarity meant and means to these women, but also what are the challenges to doing it, to building it materially, especially? Well, let me start this time just very shortly by saying that one of my interviewers, uh, Ismail Shah Jahan, pointed out that there are no current institutional infrastructures for socialist feminist internationalism. And there's actually just a new book out by Elizabeth Armstrong called Let's Bury the Corpse of Colonialism, which is on the Women's International Democratic 
Federation, which was an institutional space where women could materially, physically meet each other. And that does not exist anymore. There are new attempts, very new at the moment, progressive international, but that's, and WDF is actually one of the founding organizational members, but it's still not really managed to create that space. World Social Forum tried sometimes. The Kurdish, I think, women's conferences, in my opinion, are some of the more interesting spaces where socialist, feminist, international could be built. And of course, we're in a new era now online. So new things are possible. But that kind of slow, I think, especially for the WDF that really does try to build from the ground up organization, there is a very deep sort of knowing that, you know, it's, it's, there is kind of a feeling that, which I kind of agree with, but that it's very easy to do the like, writing and declarations of solidarity and very difficult to do the slow work of building strong uh, political relationships. It is possible for them to, for example, just do solidarity work and not do grassroots work and come across as a very active organization. But that's, of course, not their priority. So this the physical spaces for slow relationship building, which requires physically meeting, doesn't really... And it's also become more difficult because of visa restrictions and mobility restrictions in a way that it wasn't before. But again, I think it would be really interesting to hear from all of you, but especially the, I actually met Elif at the <laughs> the Kurdish Women's Conference in Frankfurt a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, perhaps on that note, I'll come in then. Yeah, so we had met in Frankfurt in 2018 at the first Women Weaving future conference that was led by the Kurdish women's movement. And the second one just happened in uh, November 2022 in Berlin, where 800 women from, I think it was around 43 or 44 different territories came together in Berlin to discuss visions for what a different world can look like. And I think, you know, and I'll get to what perhaps some of those visions are, but I think in terms of international solidarity, particularly in how it comes across, for example, in the life of Sakina Jansas and therefore like her telling of that history is, you know, it's seeing international solidarity, of course, for, in, in various different ways, right? Like seeing international solidarity or international solidarity being as supporting other struggles um, as being in some sort of like mutual aid with other struggles, but also seeing international solidarity as necessary for your own victory. And I think that's also something that really comes through in, you know, in the way Sakina Jansas understands struggle as well. And I think perhaps one of the ways in which the Kurdish women's movement has articulated what some of its like future visions are, I would say is also, of course, understanding the cruciality of international solidarity, but almost moving beyond that or creating something else in parallel. So I think, you know, we could see it as moving beyond that, but perhaps also like doing something in parallel, which um, the Kurdish women's movement would refer to as common struggle. And seeing international solidarity, something of like, you know, being in mutual aid, which of course is very crucial, but it being in common struggle is of course very similar to that. But what, what it is, I think, 
a bit different about it is that it's also about not just supporting each other's struggles, but actually envisioning an alternative world systems and way to way to live, way to struggle together. And that of that sometimes looks like organizing these conferences in which the women from literally every corner of the world can come and discuss their struggles and also therefore like through those discussions start to also engage in the understanding of what some of these visions can look like, but also doing kind of like the work in between and doing the the ideological, the political and the methodological work of knowledge production, of creating visions together, of actually practically thinking about what some of these questions can look like. So, you know, one of the purposes of these Women Weaving Future conferences is to further the vision that the that is led by the Kurdish women's movement called World Women's Democratic Confederalism. And for the sake of understanding what I guess we could kind of refer to it as is a non-state women's liberationist alternative to the UN. So it would be this confederal way in which women's struggles can come together and actually discuss some of these like political and ideological questions while also still being able to engage in our own struggles and also understanding that there's different battlegrounds for the for the for the systems we're fighting against but also for the systems we are trying to fight for and trying to build and i think that especially definitely and definitely comes through when we read about and, and try and understand the life and the vision and the and the struggle of Sakina Jansas but also in the broader Kurdish women's movement. And yeah, I think especially in terms of the visions that come through in the Women Weaving Future Conferences and the World Women's Democratic Confederalism, I feel very energized and inspired by it all because it's also, it's happening right now. And I think, you know, what Mahish spoke about in terms of we don't really have those institutions that are able to kind of not only be responding to crises and that's not to obviously dismiss the very real struggles that some of these people and some of our struggles are involved in in like literally fighting against invasion occupation everyday physical violence and of course other forms of violence these are important but there needs to be these visions need to be expanding organizational and mobilization capacity not taking away from the ones that already exist. And I think the way, for example, the Kurdish women's movement does that is, of course, different layers of organizing. So there's the mobilization, the organization of community never stops. That is a continuous thing and it's a consistent thing. But then there's different layers of the way the other work needs to be done. So whenever whenever these visions are discussed, it has to be in the context of expanding organizational capacity, not where do we take the capacity from to be able to now do this thing that we've now conjured up. Thank you so much. I feel like those responses lead us quite nicely into a next part of the discussion, which is the role of these histories today and how these histories can be generative in movement building, but also how the struggles that are still being fought in order to remember these women. So I wonder, maybe Morale and Yata can start, how are the women that you've written about remembered or forgotten in a movement context? And I think maybe just to add, there is a temptation in this book to talk about these women as hidden revolutionary women or hidden histories of revolutionary women. But in fact, a lot of the names in the book are household names to people. They're just not known in a mainstream way. So it would be great to hear about how these women are being remembered. Maybe I can start. So, I mean, Marzia Ahmadi Oskui, she's ultimately part of a guerrilla movement, which is 
underground and clandestine and this actually really impacts how she is remembered both by like the leftist movement that she's a part of but also the kind of national memory or like the the broader way in which she is or isn't remembered and she was basically what Lenin terms a professional revolutionary so she devotes at some point her whole life to this revolution and engages in full-time activities which were sort of operated she operated from what was called a team house in an urban setting that was like in the city she would be in the with a few others they would be like based in a certain house and they'd engage in operations obviously as this book kind of shows us she's not just a guerrilla fighter she's actually writing and a poet and all these other things but as a result of these activities and the surveillance in the city, she reaches a very early death. And at age 29, she is basically killed by the state. And I think this question of having to navigate politics underground, being involved in clandestine activity, trying to survive in a context of like dictatorship and surveillance and repression really has an impact on how she is then remembered or how she can be remembered. Because if you think about how these movements and groups are operating at the time, they couldn't leave a trace behind as they moved from one location to the next. So they'd have a team house and would have to move on fairly soon after to sort of escape this surveillance. So in a way, the literal conditions that they're exposed to really impacts the way in which these women can be remembered. And I mean, as Marvish mentioned earlier, there are so many books, so many autobiographies, so many memoirs written about men who were involved in these movements and they narrate their lives and the you know activities they were a part of and the movements that they connected with. And those are actually one of the few sources we do have in trying to reconstruct these histories because the state archive is inaccessible and the people who narrate the experiences in the movement is is really what we have. And like women haven't really written those memoirs and autobiographies. And like Marzia is a rare case alongside another Iranian revolutionary woman, Ashrafa Dehrani, and they both have memoirs written partly by their organizations. And so as a result of this, they kind of become household names. Uh, at the time in Iran and like become really well known in the left and in those circles. But then today, Marzia is known, she's celebrated within the movement that she was a part of. She's kind of mentioned briefly in like some academic works on her, not much in English, much more like Persian and Farsi. But this work of trying to revisit those histories where it's so much easier to just write about the men in these movements really requires us to think, okay, how else can we look at surveillance materials, Savak, the Iranian secret police, for instance, or some women, few women, you know, who have written, like, how can we kind of gather these traces to try and piece together these histories? It's a really important question. So yeah, known within her leftist movement, but also, I think one last point to add, she's actually... She's remembered for something, I kind of alluded to this earlier, she's remembered for something she didn't even do. So like her most famous poem was actually written by another woman. And even within the movement, she is remembered for writing this poem. And basically, this is kind of, I think there are two points here. It's partly to do with the fact that there is so little known about women in the movement that the poetry of somebody else is automatically attributed to her because she became known as a poet. 
So that's one point which is really important. And I guess the other point is that the clandestine nature of the movement actually just meant that there was really patchy knowledge. So these two issues are kind of intertwined. Yeah, this is a great question off the heels of actually being in Accra a couple of weeks ago. And I remember walking around the city and seeing banners, if you will, that have the sort of fathers, right, of Ghanaian, Ghanaian independence pictured, <laughs> pictured on them. One of them, J.B. Danka, who is Mabel Dove's ex-husband, ironically, but Dove herself, and I think it's true for many Ghanaian women who had these very active and even visible in their own time roles in, in delivering independence are not particularly well remembered. They're not, you know, as, as the state begins to construct itself after independence, we think about defining decolonization as simply the achievement of self-governance, these sort of broader ways that these women lives bring other elements and other questions, particularly around the gendered nature of colonialism into the depth of how we think about and define decolonization, right? We have to sit with the discomfort about how much we actually achieved. Can I ask you like a slightly follow-up question? Is Mabel Dove a well-known figure in the national history of independence? She's not. She's not a well-known figure. And, and, and it is true for many, for many of the Ghanaian women who were. Part of it is, again, she falls out of, she's a little bit active in political life after she loses her seat, but then sort of falls out of political life. Part of that is she publicly goes up against Nkrumah. Nkrumah himself, right, is responding to these pressures of the Imperial West on his own project. And so she is very much against the kind of jailing of opponents and things like that. But she also has her own health problems eventually that sort of take her completely out of political life. She also has a, at least it existed at some point, uh, an autobiography, interestingly enough. Um, she does reflect on her own life, but the autobiography is not available publicly. Or I'm not sure it's still in existence, but in either state, right, part of that is is, is why she's not as, as well remembered, I think, as, as she could be. So the trajectory of her, her own political career and the way she essentially falls out of political life. But I also think about the way that she is not well remembered, again, is representative of essentially what happens, right, to women's participation, women's roles within delivering independence. After independence is delivered in 57, right, in, in 1960, then women's, over 100 women's organizations are collapsed into one organization under the National Party. And so we can see the ways in which women's organizing then is used to achieve the ends of independence, but very much constricted within an agenda and a vision that they're not essentially part of of defining themselves and Dove's career, the way that she's forgotten within Ghanaian this national narrative of, of independence within Ghana. But this is also true for many, for many African women who, who helped deliver independence. Thank you so much. I wonder if I can now ask everybody a final question. What is most remarkable to you about the woman that you brought into this collection? And why does it matter to write about them, research them and remember them today? Okay, this is a good question. And I think for me, it's something to do with youth and courage. I think what's really remarkable to me about Marzia Ahmad, your squeeze life, why I'm so interested in her story is that she, like many young people of her generation, are genuinely moved to this kind of action um, because of what they experience around them and, and the conditions, political conditions that they face. 
And, you know, learning about her life and seeing how as a young woman, 29 years old, she is on the streets in this shootout with the secret police. She's fierce. She's really fearless and really dedicated to a cause that she really believes in. I think that courage that I think has something to do with youth is is really incredible to me. So I'm really glad that you asked this question because... I wanted to give a shout out to my three comrades who I respect so much, comrade Ismat, Duba, and Marvi, for the incredible way that they hold on to doing really difficult, really difficult organizing in a place that, as we speak, is going through a new intensification of military power with disappearances and arrests and the abuse and misuse of Islamic blasphemy charges against women to shut down any kind of political organizing. So to continue to do this kind of political work in the particular form that they're doing it just requires an immense amount of courage, which I'm constantly in awe of the fact that that the three of them and really all of the women in the Women's Democratic Front, but also other women's collectives across the country have. And let me give a quick shout out to those other women's collectives. There is Baloch women's movements that are at the forefront of uh, protesting enforced disappearances. In Pakistan, there are Pashtun and Sindhi women. There is a various kinds of Khwajash Sira, what we would call elsewhere trans women uh, who do a fantastic organizing in very, very difficult conditions. And I think all of them, and also the WDF, I guess in particular the WDF, because that's what who the chapter is about. We are at a moment right now, politically, where one could do, quote unquote, feminist women's politics sort of in an individuated and atomized manner, where it looks like one is incredibly active because you maybe tweet a lot or write a lot. And that is also a form of political activity. So it's not to dismiss that, but it's really, really difficult to hold on to what is essentially also very invisible labor of slowly trying to build collective politics at a point where that slow and invisible labor is under attack and at a time when it's mostly not really appreciated because it's not particularly public, most of the work that goes into doing WDF. So when I was just recently texting with them, they were in Ismat Marvi and Duba were in the process of gearing up for an annual Congress of the Women's Democratic Front, which is things like preparing, you know, the like redraft of the manifesto and doing all of this like spell check and all of the really like drudgery of political work, which is not very sexy. Very few people really see, and it's not particularly public. So it's it's a lot of drudgery in, in a very difficult environment that requires, I, I'm so glad that I was able to catch them. In the, in the interview, in the introduction, I also speak about how difficult it was to pin them all down. I think we tried to sit down a couple of times. You know, but it it speaks to the conditions of trying to do socialist feminist organizing in a place like Pakistan. So when we were doing it, the floods had just happened. Madhvi's house had been flooded for the second time in 10 years. Her entire communities around her were flooded. Duba was involved in a lot of organizing aid 
And so you're just constantly reacting like that. I mean, it speaks to what Elif was saying before, which was how do we simultaneously, of course, remain responsive to current crises, but at the same time, not get drowned by just reacting to them and create space. And the way that they're managing to do that is very impressive. So a lot of respect and surk salam, as we say, (laughs) to my comrades back in Pakistan. It's definitely these women's courage, their brazenness, their, in many cases, decisions to completely go against the things that women are, quote unquote, supposed to do. I think about Dove's life and her activism, especially in relation to this question of, of Black freedom. We're very much in our in our own moment, right, encouraged to think about our problems through the national lens. These issues are Ghanaian problems. These issues are Liberian problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what her her life and, and of course the lives of, of, of all these women make salient is that, and what we know, right, is that these problems are very much connected to global structures and that we should be paying attention to those structures. At the same time, for those of us who are interested in building a world that works for all of us, I think her life helps us in the life of Dove and and, and Abakita helps us remember to not only just to make those connections between these experiences that we're having, not not just within these national boundaries, but as they exist across space. But we also have to sit and think with what we've we've lost or what we've we've forgotten, right? In the case of African decolonization, like what do we do with the fact that independence didn't deliver this liberation for women in the way that women and many women anticipated? What what gets lost in that? And what do we do with that information? Um, What can we do differently in our own moment? Who do we center in our own moment as we think about these current struggles against imperialism, against neocolonialism. And I think their lives are are a really great reminder of that. Yeah, I think I think in terms of what is most remarkable about Sakina Jansa's life and history and what it meant, particularly now, like as I guess for the sake of like argument in this Jinjian Azadi era where from government ministers to all these NGOs and so on have been repeating this chant, Junjian Azadi, but of course have absolutely had no interest in what the roots of it was, what it means and where it comes from. I think for me, this is also Sakina Jansas' history. It's also her life and, and also, of course, the history of the Kurdish women's movement. And I think I'm also mindful of the way I describe Sakina Jansas or the way I talk about what is remarkable about her because I also don't want to do this thing of attaching this beyond human quality because I don't think like although obviously most most of the time it comes from a very beautiful place when we do this when people do this but I think it's also important to of course maintain their humanity and understand that these histories that we're able to read inevitably of course I in writing a chapter about psychic chances I'm not able to portray some of the emotions and the feelings and some of the probably like difficult emotions perhaps some of the doubts she occasionally had these never were displayed or came across but inevitably they were of course there were of course like battles internally that were, were were not able to portray in a proper meaningful way and I think I wanted to preface what I think is remarkable about Sakina Jansas with that to also still maintain her humanity and 
Sakinin Johnson was murdered in 2013, 10 years ago, by a Turkish intelligence agent in the center of Paris, alongside Fidan Doğan and Leyla Shailim as two other Kurdish women uh, activists. One, a rising diplomatic voice of people's diplomacy, I guess what we can call, like Fidan Doğan and Leyla Shailim as a militant of the Kurdish youth movement. And this, of course, it was an assassination, so it was deliberate, but it was also the aim was to create destruction to what was an upcoming peace process between the PKK and the Turkish state, which later fell through and didn't really bear any fruit anyway. But I think that's also important to understand. And it's also been referred to by others. And, you know, Sasha, you said as well, like some of these women are household names and that is certain, certainly the case for Sakina Jansas. And actually before she was assassinated, but certainly after when these three women were assassinated in the heart of Paris, hundreds of thousands of people marched through the streets of Paris to condemn and to and to say, and this happens still every year for the past 10 years, to say we will never forget, but also that we are the people who are going to continue this torch and continue the struggle of, of these women, which of course includes Sakine Jansas. And I think I think it's amazing that we have these memoirs and these memoirs wouldn't have existed if she, if she was in a part of this collective struggle. One Perhaps she would have felt like that there was not necessarily a life to write about, but also her friends and her comrades, also the founder and the leader of the Kurdish freedom movement, Abdullah Ojan, made her write these memoirs and said, this needs to be written. So that is also as a result of the struggle of women within the Kurdish movement of establishing a already a history when Sakina Jansas was writing her memoirs in the late 90s. It was already important that the lives and the histories and the struggles of women need to be documented. And the the symbols and the sacrifices of women in the Kurdish freedom movement definitely exist, like particularly symbolically, but also beyond that within most Kurdish homes like that you would go into. But of course, that has been a struggle and it's continuously a struggle for that appreciation of sometimes, again, what is attributed to as like beyond human for that to translate into social transformation. And that is, of course, part of what the continued struggle is. But I think for me, in a nutshell, for me, what was remarkable about Sakina Jansas is the way she deeply, seemingly with every fiber in her body, absolutely hated the enemy, but loved her people and her comrades and how that also coexisted in her in this like militancy. You know, she was also in the mountains. She was also she also engaged in guerrilla warfare, this this militancy, but also this this softness to her friends and her comrades and particularly youth. And I think for that to coexist, I think is for me very remarkable, but I also see it in other people, other activists of the Kurdish women's movement. But I think the reason why it's remarkable, even though it's obviously not just something that's only specific to Sakina Jansas, is again, like often when we talk about revolutionary women, what often either revolutionary women feel like they have to do or the way they're portrayed is these male characteristics to give them credit. And I think for me, what is remarkable about Sakina Jansas is she became more herself as she struggled and became more filled with love as she struggled, but maintained and developed that hate towards the enemy and the occupier and the invader, which is primarily the Turkish state, but also the other states that occupy parts of Kurdistan. So, yeah, I think it's definitely that as, as a characteristic. And of course, her prison resistance. Thank you so, so much. And I think we've... 
covered a lot and given a great sense of the sort of stories and really important political questions which are in the book. And it's been such a joy and an honour to be part of that project with all of you. And I know that these conversations will be continuing elsewhere. So for now, it's just thank you so much for taking part in this conversation. Many thanks to Maral Shamshiri, Alif Sarakhan, Yata Kizolu, and Mavish Ahmad for taking part in this conversation, and to Sorsh Thompson for making it happen. You can find out more about them, their work, and the book She Who Struggles on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.